is from the clan Elimelech. Thank you, Megan. No, I just have to make sure I'm... Hey, hey, there we go. It turns out it works a lot better if you have a battery in it. So uh, this morning, we are continuing right where we left off last week. Last week, we finished Ruth chapter 1, so this is going to be a shocker for you. We're going to be in Ruth chapter 2 this morning. I know it's how, it's how numbers work every single time. Um, and we're going to cover a whole lot. Of, if I can eventually get to Ruth in my... There we go. I know it's after Judges. I got gotcha. you. Hang on. There we go. All right. It's a new Bible. It's not quite broken in yet, you know. So because of how much stuff we are going to cover, uh, let me just say Ruth chapter one is a wonderful, fantastic chapter. If you weren't able to be here with us last week, that's okay. Um, it's up on YouTube and Facebook. You can go check it out. I would invite you to do that. But in chapter one, we are introduced to a guy whose name is Elimelech, which is an all-time great name. Um, he's from Bethlehem, but before Bethlehem was Bethlehem, he was from Bethlehem. He has a wife named Naomi that she's wonderful. She's lovely. They have two sons named Malon and Chilion, not so lovely. Their names literally mean sickly and weak. If you name your kids sickly and weak, they're probably going to turn out kind of sickly and weak. And, uh, and they were. And so this is in the time of Judges. Judges tells us multiple times throughout the book that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. There was no king. There was no centralized authority. And so everybody just kind of did what they felt like was the right thing to do. And chaos pretty much ensued. It was a rebellious, a perverse. It was an unfortunate period in Israel's history. And the land of Bethlehem was experiencing a famine. And so Elimelech decides, hey, so that my family can survive, we are going to pack up and we are going to move to Moab. Um, but ironically, a whole lot of death occurs once he decides to pack up and move to Moab. Moab was not a place that you wanted to find yourself if you were an Israelite. The very nation itself was founded on the incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. So not a good national History. You know, I wonder if they taught that in history class to like the fourth graders. Probably not. But that's where this nation of Moab came from. Um, this is way back in Genesis. And this is a messy history. And it was idolatrous. And it was brutal. They, they practiced human sacrifice. It was a messy people to be around. And that's why no Israelite wanted to be found among the Moabites. And yet Elimelech says, this is where we're going to go. This is where the Financial opportunities are best for our family, for us to survive. So they pack up and they go to Moab. And while they're there, Naomi loses everything. Her husband dies. Her two sons marry Moabite women. And then both of them die. And she is left with these two daughters-in-law and no sons and no grandsons and no way to perpetuate the family name. She encourages the daughters-in-law to return to their homes and to their families. One of them does, but Ruth we're told that she clings to Naomi and she says, where you go, I'm going to go. Where you stay, I'm going to stay. Your people are now my people. Your God is now my God. And so Naomi travels back to her hometown of Bethlehem. She returns with no husbands, with no sons, with no grandchildren. The only thing she has is a little itty bit of faith that she has left remaining. A whole lot of life lessons that did not go out her way. And she has Ruth from Moab. They're in need of food, they're in need of family, they're in need of some kind of support, and they have none of it. One of the things that we noticed last week 
was that for Naomi, her heartbreak, the disappointments, all the bad things that she experienced were when she was in Moab, when she had gone away from where God had set up their family. That's when she experienced all of the bad things. She left Moab feeling empty and bitter. And once back home, once she was where she was supposed to be among God's people, we get this little hint of hope at the very end of the chapter. Hope that maybe she'll begin to experience the fullness and the sweetness that she has been desiring all along. Um, We said that at the center of the story of Ruth is the story of Jesus and the good news that he calls us back home to. No matter how far we wander, no matter how long we have wandered, we are called back home. And now in this gospel that we experience, that is infinitely greater than the gospel that even Naomi heard, we have an invitation as God's people to come back home, all of us, no matter how far or how long we've been wandering. So that was last week. I'm going to pray. We're going to get right into Ruth chapter two. There's so much to get into. I'm not even going to tell you a whimsical life story to get us in. There's that much stuff in Ruth too. So I'm going to pray and then we're diving in. God, you are good and you are faithful and you are at work when we see it and when we don't. God, thank you that we can trust you. Thank you that we can know that there is a place for us to come home to among your people. God bless us now as we read and study your word. Help us to understand it in a way that we haven't before. Be glorified in us, your people, this morning. And it's in Jesus' name and for his glory that we pray. Amen. Ruth chapter 2 starts off just like this. Now Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. The way that the Israelite society worked was you have an individual. That individual was a part of a family. That family was a part of a clan, and that clan was a part of a tribe. Do you remember when Saul was chosen as king? We did this a few months ago when we were going through the life of Samuel. We said that all of Israel came before Samuel, and the lots were cast, and they went by tribe, by clan, and by family, and then by individual. So that's how Israelite life was constructed. You were a member of a family. Your family was a member of a clan, and the clan was a member of a tribe. And the tribes were members of the nation. And so this person is from the clan of Elimelech. He is, he's part of the family. He is a relative and his name is Boaz. And we know that he is a man of standing. Um, That could refer to his wealth. It could refer to his character. One of the only other places that we have this phrase, a man of standing in the Old Testament is when it is referring to Gideon, who we know was loaded. And so that would make sense that man of standing meant wealth. And also we, we read the story of Gideon. We're like, what a great story. We skip the next couple chapters after that in Judges. You're like, oh, he's a creep. So maybe man of standing is just referring to Boaz's wealth because the way that Gideon's story ends up, yikes, let me tell you, um, not what you want to name your kid. There's a reason that my boys are not named Gideon. Um, that said, the Gideons are going to be here in a couple weeks uh, <laughs> to uh, talk about their ministry of putting Bibles in the hands of... Let's not tell them about this particular sermon illustration. I'm just saying, God can use people for a season, okay? Um, So, Boaz is a man of standing. The only other man of standing we have mentioned at this point in the history of Israel is Gideon. And so, it's probably a reference to the, uh, the wheat in his bank account. That's weird to trade in wheat, but... You know, he was a man of means. He was a man of 
great character. And um, so there's this guy, Boaz. He's from the family. That's all we know. Verse two says, and Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I found favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. It's not sound like a very hopeful way to get food. Hey, let me go troll for leftovers. I'm so hungry. Let's, let's go try to find some leftovers. But the Israelites were commanded by their law to be merciful to the poor. They were not to, um, reap from the corners of their fields. They were supposed to leave the, the corners, the, the edges so that the poor could come and, and reap those them, themselves. Um, any sheaf that didn't quite make it into the basket or whatever it is that you were harvesting into anything that fell behind you, you were not allowed to go back and pick it up. This is according to Leviticus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 24. These are well-established laws within the community of the Israelites because there was some mercy for the poor built in to their life as a nation. They were supposed to leave things for the poor to glean. Similar laws existed regarding vineyards and olive, uh, olive yards. Is that the thing? I don't know. Groves. Thank you. I should not let myself type ever. Um, but generosity was woven into God's law because God wanted to let the nation of Israel know that it was a blessing to be a blessing. God wanted the other nations of the world to know that they were blessed to be in proximity to Israel because these laws that extended to the poor in the Israelite society also extended to the foreigners that happened to be among them. And so Ruth says, Hey, there's this law. Apparently I'm allowed to go do this. I'm going to go. And Naomi says, great idea. I'm hungry too. Go girl, go, go find something to eat. So she went out, entered a field and began to glean behind the harvesters. As it turned out, she was working in a field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. So this is where the story gets really good. As it turns out, she happened to find herself in this one particular field. Uh, some translations might say in your Bible, uh, it just so happened. Um, one translation I was reading this week said, as luck would have it. Um, why does the Bible put it this way? Well, I think the narrator of Ruth is going out of his way to let us say, no, 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 that's not luck. That's not an as it so happened. That's not that it just turned out that way. It says it in an ironic way to get our attention. This isn't happenstance. This isn't circumstance. This is God's providence. And I think if we had, you know, an extra four or five hours today, we could pass the microphone and we could all go around the room and talk about the just so happened moments that we have experienced in our lives that sure on the outside could look like, I guess that kind of could have happened that way, but we know that God was at work. We know that there was something much bigger at play. We don't always see them in the windshield when we're looking right at them. But then when we're looking in the rear view mirror on the way back, it's like, Oh God, your fingerprints are all over that. Six years ago, when our family was looking for and praying about the next church that we would serve in, um, and we were like, God, what do you have next for us? What is it that you have for us? And it just so happened that my closest friend in ministry was serving at a covenant church in Pinellas County. And he said to his boss, hey, boss, um, you know, my, my buddy, Andrew, who you've known and, and liked for some time, he is looking for another ministry opportunity. And that boss who was in a covenant church in Pinellas County said, hey, hey you know, it just so happens 
that one of our sister churches in uh, Safety Harbor is looking for a pastor right this very minute. As it turns out, they are in need and they can't afford anybody good, so we'll give them Andrew. Oh, no, that's not how it happened. That's not how it happened at all. But as it turned out, there was a church looking for a pastor. And as luck would have it, according to the uh, guy who's narrating Ruth, as luck would have it, that church just so happened to be in my hometown. And as it turns out, the location of the church is exactly one block away from the location of a site that I said in a seminary paper 10 years before I was ever interviewed. You know, if I were to do anything in the world, what would I want to do? And it was plant a church where Captain's Pizza used to be. Now it's like some med spa. I don't, you know, do you remember Captain's Pizza? It was so greasy and delicious. (sighs) My tummy hurts just thinking about it, but I loved it. As it turns out, all of these things worked together. As luck would have it, there's all these different things working together at once. The timing was right. The location was right. The situation was right. And sure, some people might call that coincidental. But as people of faith, we say, no, 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 no. That's, that's not coincidental. That's not one thing working together the right way. That is God working all things for our good and for his glory. And that's what's happening here in Ruth chapter two. And the narrator puts it this way, kind of sarcastically to get us thinking, what are you talking about? That is not, that is not a just so happens thing. That is God. God has orchestrated that perfectly. There's a theologian who I believe has since passed, but his name is Ronald Halls. And he puts it like this. He says, the labeling of Ruth's meeting with Boaz as chance is nothing more than the author's way of saying that no human intent was involved. For, Boaz, for Ruth and Boaz, it was an accident, but not for God. The tenor of the whole story makes it clear that the narrator sees God's hand throughout. In fact, the very secularism of his expression here is his way of stressing that conviction. It's a kind of underplaying for effect. By calling this meeting an accident, the writer enables himself to subtly point out that even the accidental is directed by God. We have this thing where it says at the end of verse three, that it just so happened as it turned out, as luck would have it. And yet we can see that God was orchestrating this exactly as he wanted it to be. So she's working in the field that just so happens to be owned by her deceased father-in-law's relative. Just then Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. They answered. Boaz asked the overseer of his harvesters, who does that young woman belong to? Now, this isn't a normal greeting from a boss to his employees, but apparently it is for Boaz. He's not just a godly man. He's not just a man of means or of stature, but he also has a genuine rapport with his employees. And as he's checking in with his foreman, as he's checking in, you know, hey, how's the harvest going? How's today going? He realizes that he does not know everybody in the field. And suddenly he is very curious about one particular gleaner. The overseer replied, she is the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves behind the harvesters. She came into the field and has remained here from morning until now, except for a short rest in the shelter. The foreman explains who Ruth is. 
And then he adds, by the way, she has been working tirelessly. Like she has been working all day. She's been out here. She's taken one short little break and that's it. She's working harder than any of these guys that you've hired to be out here harvesting. So Boaz says to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Do not go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. Here is what scholars and theologians typically refer to as a pickup line. Um, and he's like, oh, hey, girl. Um, you look hungry and I got some food. Um, but he says, this is why you need to stay here. Here you're going to be safe. And in some of the other fields, um, you probably wouldn't be safe. You're thirsty. I'm giving you the status of the women that have been hired on to come and work for me. You have full rights to come and get a drink. You can sit in the shade. I know you're not technically my employee, but you have the same rights as my employees. If you're hungry, if you're thirsty, I've got you covered. And oh, by the way, I can guarantee all of those things. I can guarantee your status. I can guarantee your safety because I'm kind of a big deal. Um, I own this place. Um, it's probably not the best pickup line, but I'm guessing some of you have heard worse. And um, she sticks around. One of the things that Boaz is referencing here is that the fields might not be safe. And he is not exaggerating. Gleaners, especially foreign born gleaners, were regularly taken advantage of by men in the fields. And it's really easy for us to look back some 3,000 years on this event and think that Ruth was just going out and accepting some sort of charity to provide food for herself and Naomi. But she is very much taking her life, she's very much taking her safety into her own hands by volunteering to go out into the fields in this way. And Boaz says, let me tell you, no one that would work for me would ever do that because they would not be working for me. And by the way, remember when I said I was a big deal, it wouldn't go well for them if they did. So in my fields, you are safer than you will be anywhere else. Trust me, this is where you want to glean. Verse 10 says, at this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? That's kind of the question of the chapter. It's set up at the very, very beginning. Verse two sets it up with her saying, hey, I'm in need of someone to show me favor. She says, hey, mother-in-law, I'm going to go out and look for anyone who will show me favor. And now in verse eight, she's saying, why am I getting so much favor? Why am I being treated so much better than I deserve to be treated? I'm not deserving. I'm a foreigner. Why are you showing such mercy to me? Is what she's saying in verse 10, eight verses after she said, I need someone, anyone to show me favor. The Israelites did not normally treat foreigners this way during the period of the judges. Remember, the judges was the period when everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Boaz explains to her that it's not her nationality, but it is her unselfish love for Naomi is what he's going to say here in verse 11. And then in verse 12, her trust in Yahweh that had motivated him to bless her this way. He says in verses 11 and 12, Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, by the God of Israel, under whose wings 
you have come to take refuge. He says, I am treating you this way because a, you treated a relative of mine better than you were expected or required to treat her. And I'm treating you this way because you have placed yourself under the wings of my God. You have come to my God and said, protect me. And because you trust my God, you can trust me. It does not take long for Boaz to notice Ruth's outstanding character. He has his eyes trained to see that her worth is not based on her nationality, but rather her courage and her faith and not merely her station or her ethnic background. And there's a very important reason for this that we don't quite get. We don't fully comprehend until we skip forward literally about 11, 1200 years until the time of Christ. And in Matthew chapter one, which is one of the more boring chapters in the gospels. It is just the genealogy of Jesus. This guy begat that guy and that guy begat this guy. It's just this list of names. But in the middle of that, in, in verse five and six, we get this. Now it's not salmon. This time it's actually Salmon, which is so confusing. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse was the father of King David. So we're getting this list of all these people that lead up to Jesus, his full family history. But in the middle of that, in verse five, we said we have Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz's mom was a foreigner. Boaz's mom was not someone who was from Israelite society, but rather she was a prostitute who bravely caused Joshua's spies to safely enter the city of Jericho and then to safely leave the city of Jericho because she believed in Yahweh. She said, this way, the way of my people, this isn't going to work out. And so when the, when the spies first came into Jericho in Joshua chapter two, she said, hey, I want in. I want in with your God. I want in with your people. What can I do to help? She is another non-Jewish woman, a Canaanite, a former prostitute who God says, you are welcome in my family. You are welcome among my people. And she became Boaz's mother. Boaz grew up in a house that was very, very Jewish, that thought in a very Israelite centric way. But he knew that sometimes God had bigger plans and bigger purposes for people. And so when he meets Ruth, he has all these flashbacks to the stories that he had heard about his mother growing up. He had this flashback to understanding what it was like to be embraced by a culture that was not originally your own. Imagine having a mother who had been through what Boaz's mother had been through. Wouldn't that cause you to treat people differently? And it just so happens, as luck would have it, as it turned out, that is the field that Ruth the foreigner from the disgraced people group turned up in. It must have affected the way that Boaz viewed Ruth that day and later on um, as she gleaned in his field. In verse 12, Boaz makes it clear that it's Ruth's trust of God that has now become public and it is knowledge to everybody in Bethlehem. The people are talking about, hey, this person that has come home with Naomi, she is loving her more than she needs to. Her faith is stronger than it should be as a foreigner. This is someone that we should be behind. This is someone that we should support. And we have this little prayer that Boaz offers here in verse 12. 
He says, may the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And here's the thing about this prayer that Boaz offers. Boaz is the answer to that prayer. Boaz is praying, hey, God, would you send someone to bless Ruth and Naomi? Would you send someone to take care of Ruth and Naomi? And God's like, yeah, dude, what do you think I'm doing? Why do you think you're having this conversation? Prayer sometimes moves the hand of God to do something, but sometimes prayer moves the heart of the one praying to do what is being prayed for. And that's what's happening in this situation. Verse 13 says, may I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. She says, you're treating me like I work for you. Thank you so much. You, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable. Thank you. This is wonderful. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread and dip it in wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvester, he harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some leftovers. You know that bread that they give you at Carabas? You know what I'm talking about, right? And it's got that, that one little dot of balsamic at the bottom of that oil and that, the herbs and stuff on top of it. That was a move back then, and it's a move now. I'm telling you. Um, he says, you think the bread is good? Try it dipped in this. And then he takes it a step further. He doesn't just say, you're invited. You're invited to come and share with us. He actually serves her. This is not just a Moabite foreigner who's been invited to the table. This is Boaz going to her literally and serving her at his table. This is the Lord of the harvest, which is kind of a weird title, but that's what they would have called him in that setting because he was the guy who owned the land. He was the Lord of the harvest serving a foreigner at his table. And then he keeps being more generous. Verse 15 and 16 say, as she got up to glean, Boaz gave orders to his men. Let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some of the stalks from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. Again, she's going to be provided for. She's going to be protected. And Boaz is going to make sure of it. Then verse 17 says, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered. And it amounted to be about an ephah. An ephah was anywhere between 30 and 50 pounds. I don't bake a lot, but I'm assuming if I had 30 to 50 pounds of uh, barley or wheat that had been threshed, this is the leftover, this is the flour, you could probably bake a little bit of bread with 30 to 50 pounds. Ancient, in ancient Babylonia, the average ration for a male laborer for one day was between one and two pounds. And she's got between 30 and 50 pounds after one day's work. She just walked away with two weeks worth of food for herself and Naomi after one day's work. Verse 18 says, she carried it back to town and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. So Naomi not only sees all of this food that she has, but now Naomi's getting some of that Carabas dip as well and thinking, where did you go today? What is going on here? This is not what somebody gathers after one day of gleaning. This is the equivalent to half a month's wages. And Ruth is now 
saying to Naomi, yeah, can you believe it? It, it was a really good day, I guess. I wonder if when she walked, like, you know, first of all, I wonder how she's carrying that bag of stuff. You know, I'm, I've got a bum shoulder. I don't know that, you know, the, the, I don't know if you like hoist it like, like, you know, Santa or whatever, or if you've got a backpack thing going on. Either way, it was, it was a heavy bit to be uh, caring. And I'm wondering what Naomi thought when she walked through the door. She was expecting Ruth to get less because of her nationality and because of her station. But here she is. And this is enough food to last them weeks. Her mother-in-law asked her, where did you glean today? Where did you work? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. She's repeating herself. She's fumbling at the mouth. But what, what is going on? Where did all this come from? You think Naomi is happy now at the first part of this verse. Um, and the author does this intentionally. He saves kind of the punchline for the end. And the, at the end of the very next sentence, the author makes sure to save the name of whose field Ruth was in so that Naomi gets the full impact of the story. Then Ruth told her mother-in-law about the one at whose place she had been working. The name of the man I worked with today is Boaz, she said. So it's kind of building as hearers, as readers of the story, um, who kind of understand how the Old Testament Israelite structure worked, we can kind of picture the look that would be building on Naomi's face. We cannot wait for her to hear whose field Ruth has been in. Listen to Naomi's response. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing kindness to the living and to the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Your Bible might say kinsman redeemer. Maybe it just says he is one of our redeemers. But the term was for someone who was legally obligated to redeem or step in for a relative who was in legal or financial trouble. Um, there is a rabbinic um, history or a legend that says that he would have been a nephew of Elimelech, but we don't know that for sure. However it is, he is a close relative to Naomi and to Ruth. And so the minute that his name is mentioned, Naomi goes, ding, 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 wait a second. Why didn't I think of that? Remember the theme of emptiness and fullness that we talked about last week and how it permeates the entire book. That's on full display here. Naomi is not only literally full of delicious bread. She is overwhelmed by the kindness that's on display. Boaz is a close relative of theirs. And I'm looking at the clock and we don't have time to go into all of this, but we'll get into it in the next couple of weeks um, about the relatives that could redeem somebody else. A redeemer had the ability to take care of a widow. Could He had the ability to take care of someone who was left with no one to perpetuate their name. And then Ruth casually mentions to her mother-in-law, oh, and by the way, he invited me to come back for the rest of the harvesting season. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, it would be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women who work for him because, I, because in someone else's field, you might be harmed. Again, this concept that we talked about before, Ruth's like, yeah, why didn't you tell me that before? <laughs> okay. But Naomi said, yeah, you're only going to go to that field. That is the field that you're going to work in. You are going to work with Boaz. You are going to work for Boaz. And in my mind's eye, I can see Ruth casually like, you know, eating some of that leftover bread, talking about her day's work. And at the same time, I can see the gears turning in Naomi's head. Like, wait a minute. 
Is this the thing that we've been praying for? Is this the thing that we've been crying out for? And then the chapter ends kind of in anticlimactic fashion. We're just told, so Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. It's almost like when you're watching a show and it gets to the end and you hit pause just to see how much time is left in the episode, right? Like, okay, there are three storylines that have to be completed and there's only four minutes left. Ugh, they're going to make me hang on till next week. And that is what the author of Ruth is doing here. The last verse tells us that all of harvesting season is going by. This is not just a matter of days. This is weeks, if not months, that this relationship is continuing that Ruth is going out into Boaz's field and coming back with all this food for herself and for Naomi. Weeks upon weeks, if not months. And you think, Boaz, what are you doing? Because we know how the story ends. Like, come on, make your move. But that's not what God is doing here. God is working in the background to orchestrate things for Ruth and Naomi's good, but ultimately for his glory. So what do we learn from Ruth 2? We don't see the author, we don't see the narrator going out of his way to mention God all that much. He lets the characters do that. The characters talk freely of God, but the narrator kind of throws in those phrases like, as it turned out, because he wants us as the readers to say, (laughs) God, your hand is all over this. This is all you. And the characters in the story ultimately are revealing to us the character of God. God is showing us his love for Naomi through the radical devotion that Ruth has. God is showing his concern for the poor and for the foreigner by Boaz's concern for Ruth. What we're seeing in the characters here in Ruth chapter two is a picture of the character of God. And just because we can't see what God is doing does not mean that he is not working tirelessly behind the scenes on our behalf. The book of Ruth is this beautiful picture of the gospel Like Ruth, we are without hope. We are empty-handed. We have nothing to offer. What more, different than Ruth, we are told in the book of Romans that we are actually hostile to God. We are enemies of God before we come to Jesus because of our sin. We are like Naomi. We have wandered. We are not where we are supposed to be, but we are being called back home to be among God's people and to be where God wants us to be. But just as Boaz welcomes Ruth and lavishes her with grace and love, we are promised that Jesus wants to welcome and to lavish us with grace and love. When we find ourselves far away from God, when we find ourselves without hope in this world, we are reminded by the story of Ruth that there is a place to come home to and that there is a God who is ready and willing to welcome us. Jesus is the greater version of Boaz. Not only does he welcome sinners, but he dies on the cross for them. He pays the price for them. Boaz is going to redeem Ruth and Naomi at the end of the story. And yet the way that Jesus has redeemed us is so much greater. When Boaz welcomed Ruth, it changed the whole story. It changed her life. And when Jesus welcomes us, it changes our story and it changes everything. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for an account like this. Thank you that we can see that you use flawed people to accomplish your perfect will. 
Thank you that we can know and trust that you are at work, even in what seems like the unconsequential. God, thank you that we have a Savior who welcomes us, who redeems us, and who gives us grace and love that we do not deserve. May all we do and say be to glorify him. Lord, I pray that this morning as we continue to worship, that you would be glorified by the songs that we sing, by the words that we say, by the way that we fellowship with one another, by the way that we give. God, again, thank you for the ways that you have sustained and blessed our church. May we be blessed to be a blessing. May we bless our community. May we bless our world by the ways that you are blessing our church. God, bless us now as we continue to worship. Be glorified in us. Amen.